Bears New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jamal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. I forgot my name for a second there. I'm so sorry, guys. <laughs> Joanna had a rough weekend. She's like, who am I? <laughs> a really big existential question, actually. I'm, you know, you have, to, you have to ask yourself that every once in a while. Like, who am I? Where am I? Yeah, yeah what's the deal? <laughs> Such a blur. Uh, so, is it because of what you drank, Joanna? Yeah, what have you been drinking, Joanna? Oh my gosh, no. <laughs> um, so I, I started talking about this in, the, in our last episode, but I did try the that Bareface um, Canadian whiskey yeah. over the weekend. Uh, that was really good. Um, I, I'd like to explore the category a little bit more. There were some mm. recommendations for more like craft, as I understand it. This is a bigger brand, mm-hmm. but it's a single grain Canadian whiskey. Set, uh, Aged for seven years in ex-bourbon barrels, um, then aged in French oak red wine casks, and air-dried virgin Hungarian oak. Sorry, I'm just reading a little description Whoa. here. Yeah. Um, so it's a little sweet, but it has smooth on the label. You know, we talk about Canadian whiskey being smooth. Yeah. They know what they're doing. They yeah. know who they're appealing to. Yeah. So, but um, other than that, uh, the engagement party that I went to that Adam shared with everyone. Hey. Um, <laughs> it was like romantic, romantic Italian backyard themed, and it had like a little bar cart that was serving Negronis and Aperol spritzes, which was very nice. And they had some sparkling wine. So yeah, so so just a pretty low key drinking weekend nice. for me. But um, yeah, gotta explore more Canadian whiskey. I'm on people. Yeah, yeah. I need I need more insight, Joanna. Yeah, that would be always welcome. Um, yeah, so I think for me, the the two things that I had recently that were uh, particularly interesting. So um, we had a opened a nice bottle of 2016 Syrah from um, W.T. Vintner's winery here uh, from uh, the Destiny Ridge Vineyard in the Horse Seven Hills. Uh, so here in the state. And, you know, I'm you guys well know I'm a big proponent of Washington wine. Um, W.T. Vintner is one of the producers here that I think does a really nice job, in particular with Syrah and other Rhone varieties, you know, nice and fruit forward, but peppery and savory and in good measure as well just a tasty bottle we had some some red meat seemed like the right thing to do um and then the other thing that i've been drinking a fair bit of lately have been um adam actually we talked about this i think while you were gone but mm-hmm. been still really in a daiquiri mood um it's been still kind of nice and sunny here during the day even though obviously as the days are getting shorter you definitely get a little more cooling off at night but like i've found that my favorite time perhaps of the day to have a daiquiri is like 3 p.m. It's like a great mid-afternoon drink mm. on like a Saturday, say. And yeah, I've just been been making those pretty much every Saturday, one, maybe two, depending on the day, <laughs> um, how the kids are behaving. And uh, yeah, that's been kind of my, my drinking regimen. How about you, Adam? Uh, okay, so for me, um, what did I dr- – no, I haven't drank a whole lot. I've still been trying to like be a little bit conscious since coming back from Italy Mm-hmm. Um, where like, you know, on vacation, you let loose a little bit more. Um, so I had a cocktail that we're going to talk about as the basis for this conversation, um, which, which I guess was, was a Negroni, a really bad one, <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, no. which will be interesting to have to, to chat about in a second. Um, and then besides that, I had, uh, just a little bit of wine, um, while watching some, like some football. And besides that, nothing else, like nothing that really like blew me away or that I was like, oh, this is like the most amazing thing or I have to share this, which is, you know, like it happens once in a while, right? Like you just, yeah, it kind of is what it is. 
So yeah, your podcast might suffer for it, but you know what can you do? It's hard work. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, you. I hope you folks understand. We're yeah. we're doing this for you. Yeah, it's hard work. So, but but this terrible Negroni. Let me share about this because because I want to <laughs> I want to have a conversation. So um, we've had conversations around this topic for a while, and it felt like after this uh, experience and chatting with you both about it, it'd be fun to chat about it on air. Um, and that is sort of the franchisement or expansion of popular cocktail bars and what that means for the cocktail bar. And is that good or bad? And what that means for the consumer and is that good or bad? So, um, I know we chatted about this a little bit when it came to the top 50 and how do bars capitalize on being named a top 50 bar, seeing bars capitalize on it, et cetera. So one of those bars that has seemed to grow, by leaps and bounds ever since it began getting recognition is Dante. Um, and, you know, Dante started on in sort of Greenwich Village. Um, it was on McDougal Street, got a lot of notoriety, very tiny bar, but, you know, started took over just, a historical bar. Yeah. And like had this robust Negroni program, started a martini program, you know, did all these collaborations and just started getting accolade after accolade. I mean, even from us, from lots of publications, like accolade after accolade after accolade, spritzes, all this stuff. Then wound up on 50 best list. Then ultimately it was named best bar in the world. Then opened Dante West Village, which is always confusing to me because is Greenwich Village the West Village too? Not really sure. And I know it's not, <laughs> but like, you know, West Village, West of Greenwich Village, whatever. So they opened Dante West Village, bigger space, uh, you know, and then they start doing cocktails, pop-ups in the Hamptons, Miami, et cetera. And then they opened where I went on this past weekend, Dante Seaport. <laughs> and let me explain why I was there. <laughs> so first, back up, back up, back up. So there was this event that I went to in uh, at the Maritime Building, this art show for this nonprofit that Naomi is involved with. And afterwards, a bunch of people wanted to go get drinks. And we tried to go to the Tin Building, which is this new Jean George concept that opened in the old fish market. Um, but it was after 5 p.m. And due to their un- inability to staff, they, they were closed, which is crazy mm-hmm. on a Saturday. Yeah. Uh, so they were only open for what they're calling preview hours from like 1 to 5. So we're like, oh, where do we go? And someone pulled up Google Maps. I was like, oh, my God. There's a Dante at the seaport right here. It's like, okay. So we go in and it's their branding, but the place easily can hold five or 600 people. It's wow. huge. It's like Dante does Vegas. And they're not the only ones down there doing this, right? There's a Mamafuku Sambar. There's a Andrew Carmelini restaurant. There's like, there's a lot of other big name chefs and restaurateurs who are who are now doing there's a defara now at the seaport oh like doing yeah right doing things down there probably because real estate is luring them there mm-hmm. but dante is for sure there because lots of people has, have heard this is you know over in the past few years has been named the best bar in the world look death and company has done this too the dead rabbit has done this etc so we go in and I, listener, when I tell you this was not a Dante experience, this was not a Dante experience. And I would feel very bad for anyone who thought that this was what Dante is, mm. right? First of all, they had multiple theme bars that all happened to be closed, probably staffing, but they had a martini bar, they had a Negroni bar, they had a main bar. Oh. It all feels very kitschy, like 
you know, almost like, again, Dante does Vegas, little ice cream truck, like set up where they're doing affogados and stuff also was oddly closed on a Saturday. So then we go to the main bar. Bartenders are very confused. They're sort of like dumb, sloppily making drinks. And so I just like, you know what, I'll order a Negroni. And I ordered Negroni. And when you have the Negroni at Dante, when I first had it, they take it very seriously. Or they did, right? When I mean, Dory could say the drink that made Dante, yes. really. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, again, you know, Naren Young was the the beverage direct, creative director then. They were taking it very seriously. I know there's other people behind the, the, the bar now who still do at the, at the original location. But anyways, at this one, it was a batch dumped out of a bottle into a glass and then just like – you know, I just saw the bartender take that plastic, you know, shovel or whatever, just into the ice, like like an ice machine of a hotel, and just dump ice into the glass. So the the the, the ice we say that you should never use with a cocktail, right? Especially a nice cocktail, just that sort of chip ice or whatever we call yep. it, right? And then an an orange slice, not even not even a the peel, a full mm-hmm. slice of orange. Just dunked into the glass here, eighteen dollars, and I. It made me think, like you know, does this ultimately hurt this brand? Because the people that were there seem to be having a nice time. Like you're, you're on the water, etc. But like, is this going to be you know, ultimately bad for the brand? Because mm-hmm. they could have opened something else, right? They could have said. This is called this is called like Seaport Views by by Dante even or something, right? But mm-hmm. like they're, they're literally this is Dante at the seaport. So you're expecting the the Dante experience and you're not getting it. And you know, I've heard this from other people who've gone to places that have sort of opened a second or a third or a fourth location, that this is the same kind of thing that seems to happen. And I know that this is how you ultimately make more money, right? right. Like you, you need to be able to expand. But when you're, a, but can a fancy cocktail bar really expand like this? It feels like you can't because to do the kind of volume that this place needs to do, you almost have to have the experience I had, which is like a batch Negroni dumped into a glass with affordable ice that can be made quickly, not a meticulously made Negroni over a large, clear draft ice cube. And so I'm curious, you know, what you both think about this, because my kind of feeling is this ultimately could hurt the brand. But I could see a lot of people that argue and say, no, the brand is going to be exposed to so many more people who can't get into those other locations and who feel like they went to Dante and they don't care anyways. Yeah, I think so. I think that there's a difference between Dante opening a second location where there's just as much attention to detail and care for the cocktail program, like in the West Village, um, and then expanding to different locations like Dante Seaport, which has its own website, actually, that it's not mentioned on the regular Dante website. And oh, maybe I didn't There's know a that. reason for it. Um, but I do think that it, it comes down to, yeah, like you're saying, Adam, like, do they care? Um, maybe at this point... They feel like they've built a really strong brand with, in you know, global recognition, um, and it is just about enough people being able to have the saying they they had the Dante experience by going to a place that 
accommodates, you know, 300 people or whatever, 400 people. Um, and maybe they don't really care about their drinks, but I, but I do think that that's kind of, that's the line because I think with other places, like you see there's PDT and then there's PDT in Hong Kong. Um, other, other bars have been able to expand or open other locations without losing the integrity uh, and the original, you know, vibe of, of what they were doing in the, in the flagship location. Yeah. I mean, I guess some people claim, right, that the Death & Co. LA is as good, if not better. Right. Because that, they both made the list this year, right? Yeah. But it just seems, it seems like it's such a risk, you know, because if you, if you don't execute it absolutely perfectly, it, you know, people can have experiences like this and then you can have, someone associated with a cocktail publication <laughs> start talking about how it wasn't yeah. that great. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the risk is to the people who take cocktails seriously, but then yeah. in losing, in losing them, you gain all these other people. <laughs> yeah. Well, so here, here's, here's, I think a good frame of reference potentially. So this has been going on with, with chefs and with restaurants for decades. Yeah. Right. And Adam, you mentioned Vegas. I think Vegas is one example, but I think about like, this is maybe a little bit more of an extreme example than the one you've described with the Dante Seaport. But like, would someone be taken seriously if they talked about how they went to a Wolfgang Puck in an airport and it, the food was not as good as the Wolfgang Puck restaurant they went to in Los Angeles? Like, no, you kind of expect from the setting that like the the whatever connection those two things have is probably just the some of the money goes to the same place and maybe like at one point Wolfgang Puck was involved in something I don't even really know menu design whatever that means Mm -hmm. and and so franchising and the idea of like taking this commodity that is the Dante brand and applying it to places that do not in any way shape or form perhaps live up to the experience of the original bar or even the West Village bar is I think almost an easier thing to swallow than places that might open a second location that is attempting to imitate the first but doesn't do it well and that i think is actually maybe a riskier move for a bar right if you open dante i don't know austin or something right Right. and it's like intended to be like the new york location the original or the the west village one or whatever and for whatever reason doesn't land right you don't get the right you don't get enough quality bar staff because you don't have roots in that place and it's hard to hire um, or people don't take kindly to it because they want to support you know, bar concepts that were born in Austin and are not transplanted. Like, I think we can all kind of look at something like the seaport and say, like, maybe your Negroni sucked and that's a bummer. And certainly paying $18 for a bad Negroni or at least an uninspiring one is no fun. But also, like, you walk into a space that accommodates 500 people, you're going to presumably have a different set of expectations for the kind of experience you're going to have than if you walk into a 30-seat small cocktail bar. And I honestly commend the Dante people in some way for just being like, hell yeah, well, sure, let's do this. Like, this is a way for us to make right. serious bank, yeah. not trying to do Dante again in a different place where like, you're just, your margin on a, on a small cocktail bar just inevitably going to be small. Yeah, I know. Um, because it's, you can't, you just can't do volume. You can do volume at the seaport, as it turns out. Yeah, I think there's also a good point that you made there, Zach, about specific, like the actual place that these types of um you know, like bars or restaurants are opening. And I, I do think the seaport um, is kind of like one of those places where there's often a lot of tourists. Um, mm-hmm. It's not like it's not quite the airport or, <laughs> um, you know, 
a stadium or something like that. But I do. It's awfully close, though. (laughs) Yeah, it it is kind of close. So I think it's like this was a seems to be a good opportunity where maybe the quality doesn't have to be up to the original um, and they're still going to, yeah, make a ton of money. Yeah, I mean, I think I feel like the where this this is doable is like when the bar that's franchising or not franchise, but you know, expanding is already like a a large format bar, right? Like a so you know, Dead Rabbit is not a small space, right? So to open multiple Dead Rabbits, which is the plan, I think kind of makes sense because people kind of know what they're getting at Dead Rabbit, and for some people, that's just a really great experience and a properly poured Guinness. Yeah. Right. And for others, it's really, you know, incredible cocktails. I think where it's hard is when you take a brand that potentially made its full name in that intimate setting and then you expand it. What's what's so challenging about this example in particular is they're still trying to do what they became known for at the other bars. Interesting. And like to have the specific martini bar that you know wasn't open, so they were they said they could make that you know whatever you wanted at the other at, at, you know the main bar uh, is saying well, we're known for these martini sessions and we're going to have a bar devoted to that and we're doing it in the same glassware and we're charging the same prices. Yeah, and that I think is really difficult to do when it's not done well. Whereas, like if Dante had said. We are going to open a large format bar, and it's going to be a fully. It's you know, it's gonna it's gonna be a different concept. Eat, I don't know every at different times of the year, whatever. Maybe in the summer, it's all spritzes or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's our spritz concept bar. Then it's all in a. Maybe this would have worked better. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's very challenging, I think, to pull something off like this that is trying to take eighteen to twenty dollar cocktails and do them at volume in yeah. such a large space. And it's just, it's such a different, it's just such a different experience. Yeah. Um, and, and that I think is, is hard because then, you know, you have consumers who either have a great experience or like we said, cocktail people like us who then say, oh man, this is really not great. Like what's happening to this brand? Yeah. Even though I'm yeah. sure that if I went to McDougal Street tomorrow, it would be a great experience. Yeah. Well, and I think it's like the blessing and curse of a reputation like Dante's, right? Like on the one hand, you have the cachet to launch a 500-seat cocktail emporium at the seaport, right? Undoubtedly, however, that deal came together, the name Dante was an important part of it. Oh, like for whatever you said, Adam, I'm sure that the developer was not going to – or whoever, the, the landlord was not going to sign off on – you know, some sort of name for a bar that doesn't include Dante, because they're not dumb. They understand that some segment of the population is going to be like, oh, yeah, I've heard of that bar. Sure, I'll go get an $18 Negroni there. Whereas a no name, you know, just kind of created for the seaport bar might have a harder time kind of getting that same level of of buy-in from guests. Conversely, you are kind of maybe also trapped into feeling like you have to offer something that is an approximation of the experience that you might get at some of the smaller locations. And that might be something that over time, I mean, it seems like in some sense, it's already being phased out because they can't literally staff the concept. Um, And perhaps, you know, over time, you're going to find if you go back to that location, assuming it's still open in a year, that maybe they really have streamlined things. Maybe it's very upfront that like you're getting a batch Negroni and like maybe shit, maybe you it's a three drink 
you know, kind of kit and it comes with, you know, you put it together yourself table side or I don't know, like there's a lot of ways that you can make the sort of space and limitations of a big bar work for you um, mm-hmm. as well as work against you. But I do think that the other interesting question is like the kind of reputation that Dante and a few other bars have does seem well matched for this kind of expansion. And, and I mentioned airports before, and I'm actually kind of surprised, you know, would it shock any of you to go into a an airport in, you know, I don't know if they have locations at, I know there's a, you know, there's this, the, the speakeasy we've talked about at JFK, yeah. which is part of what the Amex Centurion Lounge or something, right? It's but, not like a, yeah. it has some connection to a local bar. I don't yeah, PDT, right? Yeah, okay. yeah, 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 um, yeah, it's, it's, it's Meehan, yeah. Would it shock you to find, like, in 10 years, like, a, a Dante location in, like, six airports around no, the but country? I actually no. think that makes more sense. <laughs> it does. Well, and, but, but I think that's my point is, like, the way you get that to work is you get these bigger other concepts to to land because, you know, what, what I think they're trying to do is take the Dante brand, I guess, for lack of a better way of putting it, and ex- if you're exposing it to people at the seaport, you're already putting it in front of a whole set of potential customers who would never – bother to make a reservation to go to a cocktail bar, right? They're not yeah. going to they're not going to deal with that cuz they just don't care enough. They might right. enjoy a drink, but but if you if the name is recognizable cuz it's splashed everywhere in New York City, say, um or at least in the kinds of places that people who, you know, the the millions of people who travel every year are familiar with, then if they're in the, you know, the airport bar in you know, whatever, pick a place. I'm not going to even play this game anymore. Um in three years and they're like, Oh yeah, Dante, hi, I've heard of that. Oh, cool. Let's get a drink there. Right. Like this whole thing with another episode sometime of like, you know, what is happening with airline or airport concessions is really fascinating to me because it's changed tremendously over the last half decade or so. But, you know, especially if you're not the kind of person who has, you know, access to a, a lounge and you want a decent drink, like this seems like a natural place for this kind of expansion. And I bet there are there's a lot of this probably going on behind the scenes that I'm not aware of, but that to me seems like in the same way that, you know, you see it happening with, as we talked about sporting events, you see it happening with other big places where lots of people gather and those people might want something more compelling than, uh, you know, spirit and mixer. Those that if you have your name out there, you have your brand out there, you've shown that you can make the concept work. I mean, maybe not quality wise, but just volume wise, you're going to get looks from these same kinds of entities. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think it does make sense on the in the in the airport setting, and I guess I guess it does make sense as well to 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 test it out here. Like, I guess the argument becomes if you you're trying to take both your brand and the and one of the drinks that made your brand famous and grow off of that, right? So you want to be synonymous for, let's be honest, the Negroni. Right? There's a huge sure. neon sign in the bar that says, you know, like your mama told you to order a Negroni or something like that. So then you also have to do the Negroni as best as you possibly can, right? And I feel like that's where sometimes it's more just about now the name than the overall experience. Like I still want someone to feel like they got an incredible Negroni. And now now we know that Tim McCurdy of Coast of Cocktail College will argue that there is no such thing as an incredible Negroni. (laughs) There's just Negronis. But like you want people to feel like they had the best version they possibly could. And I think that becomes harder when bars get bigger because there's just, you know, it's just, it's an issue of the volume and the push. And like, it's a lot harder to deal with a huge block of draft ice than just the regular ice that's available behind the bar. That's that chip ice, you know? So I think that's what makes it more challenging. And is it fair for me to judge this bar the same as the other Dante's, right? Like, and I'm curious what, what listeners think, right? Like, 
this bar is called Dante at the seaport. Yeah. Is it fair for me to hold it to the same standard as Dante and Dante West Village? Or is it not? And if it's not, cool. like, I don't hold an airport's the, – the version – of some of these places at the airport to 100% the same standard. Do you know what I mean? Like if I've eaten yeah. at like a yeah. palm or whatever, like when I'm, when I have a, when I have a delay or, you know, not holding it to the same standard as like a high end steakhouse in the city or whatever. But then Danny Meyer would argue to you, with you that like the shake shack in the airport better be as damn good as every single other one of his shake shacks, or he's not going to do it. So that's where I think we have the problem. Well, that's where I think, the, I don't know, and this could be wrong, but maybe I just think that Dante people think the seaport location is good and is achieving what they want it to. Right. And they maybe don't care if the, you know, it seems successful. <laughs> I think maybe it'd be a different story if it was never full, but it seems like it's oh, a very it's packed, popular yeah. place. Yeah, exactly. So it's doing exactly what they want it to. And yeah, maybe you go to the original location for that experience, but as the brand continues to expand... It is just about the name. Right. Well, and I think you, you mentioned Shake Shack, which is something that I've been thinking about for this whole conversation. Me too, me I too, think yeah. like they're they're every operator, or not every, but many operators, I mean, that's their dream, right? Like that took Danny Meyer from like a very successful restaurant tour to like an incredibly wealthy person. And, you know, I don't doubt that 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 sort of thing is on the mind of, you know, any number of people, because like, yeah, it would be that would probably be nice. And yeah, but I think there's I a difference that... between doing that with Shake Shack and doing that, trying to achieve the same thing with like Union Square Cafe or Gramercy right. Tavern. Like, well, I think yeah, it lent I mean, itself to this in a way that sure. maybe Dante doesn't because it had such a high, such a high standard and, and quality. Yeah. Well, and you know, doing it with burgers is different than with cocktails. Like it's yeah. just a diff- you're not you're not going to achieve the same kind of you know. It's just a different business in some way. But I think the but the point is is that you know it may be that for Dante that and the and that company that using the Dante brand in, ends up being a a, a a problem as you know just because it hasn't been yet it does not mean it couldn't be down the road. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like there's also no guarantee that you know just because. Um, you know, what, what they were doing at Shake Shack was fundamentally different than what, you know, what the food that served it, you know, Union Square Cafe or Gramercy Tavern or whatever, in a way that conceptually, at least the cocktails at Dante at the Seaport or Dante at JFK or Dante at, I don't know, you know, Walt Disney World are, you know, in, these are hypotheticals, to be clear, um, are, are don't necessarily have to be as d- radically different from the, the beverages served at Dante in the West Village or whatever, as the Shake Shack would be from, like I said, those more established restaurants. So that, that the way that Danny Meyer or, you know, Union Square Hospitality Group did it is not the way that everyone has to think about doing it. And in fact, franchising the Dante name might actually be the best bet because it's a very recognizable name. Yeah. yeah. So I'm curious what people think. Uh, am I being too hard? <laughs> you know, what, 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 yes, what do tell you us. just tell, like, tell us. And uh, <laughs> what do you, what do you think of the, of these expansions? Hit us up at podcast at vinepair.com. And Zach and Joanne, I'll see you on Friday. See you Friday. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, 
anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire Vine Pair staff and everyone who's been involved in making Vine Pair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.